Well, good morning, everybody. In the words of boys to men, we have come to the end of the road, right? Um, We started this series about four weeks ago, um, trying to answer a question that I think we all wonder about, we all wrestle with, but there's a whole lot of people Googling it and uh, trying our best to, to, to come up with, okay, what, is, what does it look like after we die? What happens to you after, after you die? Last week were all of our questions about heaven. Um, this week are your questions about hell, which has apparently frozen over because KU won a football game last night. <laughs> right? Not sure what to do with it. Is either that or Jesus is coming back. It's one or the other, right? No, um, this, this is it's kind of surprising to me but um, I thought there would be more questions about hell than there were about heaven, but there were far fewer questions about hell than there were about heaven. And I don't know this, but I kind of wonder if one of the reasons that there weren't as many questions about hell as there were about heaven is because we don't like thinking about it. We don't like talking about it a whole lot. But if you're here today, we're going to talk about it. Okay, we're going to talk about this and wrestle with some of these things. Um, and I think it's just interesting that we, we don't want to talk about it. You know, hell's kind of a joke. It's a profanity. Um, you know, we try to make Satan cartoonish. So he's, he's not as real. It's a little bit more palatable to be able to swallow the reality of hell if we, if we make it a cartoon. And, and, and churches even do this. Like, I already made a joke about hell today, right? But churches do this. You guys have seen the church signs? Okay, we don't have one of those out front, but a lot of churches have a church sign out front where they put service times or their pastor's name or little pithy sayings, right, um, about different things. Well, I went on the interwebs this week and found some pithy sayings about hell on church signs. Now, I, I want to admit, I don't know if these are real or if this was created by one of those online sign generators, okay? I don't know, but either way, it proves my point that we kind of want to relegate this to the area of jokes. So here's, here's the first church sign. Uh, what is hell like? Come hear our preacher. <laughs> right? Now, the funny thing is, the person who did this sign is going to find out what hell is like. <laughs> Just throw that out there. Here's the second one. Here's the second one. Sermon, what is hell? Come hear our pianist. Again, again. We want to relegate it. It's always the preacher and the music person that gets the most hits. It just always is, right? It's, it, again, it just shows you, let's make, it, let's make it funny. Let's make it a little bit more lighthearted. Even churches do this. And again, I don't know if there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but I don't want it to cause us to completely overlook it and completely ignore it. So, before we get to the questions, just a couple reminders. If you were here last week, you heard this. If you're new or, or visiting us for the first time, you need, you need to hear this. Some of the things that we're talking about today have multiple views, okay? There are really, really, really smart theologians, even some of the church fathers that helped create some of our, our creeds, the creeds of our faith, that disagree about some of these things. And disagreeing about these things doesn't mean that one person is wrong and the other person is right. It just means that there's different views on some of these things on, and some of the questions. So I'm going to do the same thing I did last week where scripture is clear. I'm going to speak clearly. Um, there, there are some things today that I can talk very clearly and authoritatively about, not because I have any authority, not because I have some great wisdom, but because scripture is clear on that. But where scripture isn't clear, I'm not going to pretend it is. 
okay? There, there, there are things about hell that Scripture isn't 100% clear on. There's some gray areas when it comes to this, so I'm not going to pretend that it's perfectly clear. So with those uh, principles kind of as our guardrails, they're going to serve as our guardrails for our conversation today, let's jump into the questions. And we're starting kind of heavy, okay? Fully admit that. But the first one is, am I already there? Okay? And, and, and I know that kind of sounds like a joke, but this, this was asked seriously. Am I already there? Is, is what I'm dealing with right now hell? Is the world we live in hell? And, and, and you know what? Again, some of us have said this, some of us thought this, my life feels like a living hell. And that could be because of broken relationships. Um, it could be because of broken marriages. It could be because of abuse. It could be because you lost a child. It could be because you can't have kids. There are multiple, multiple levels to this that people wonder, is this hell? And I understand that. I understand why people say this. I understand why some people feel like this. But at the same time, I don't think it is. And, and I'm not saying that you're not suffering I'm not saying that there's not profound suffering in this world, because there is. But to equate this world, to equate the suffering on earth that we deal with, with hell, is to misunderstand and to underestimate the reality of hell. So, it can be a little confusing when you look at what Scripture actually says about hell, contrary to popular belief, um, hell is more of a New Testament concept than it is an Old Testament concept. Um, in the Old Testament, it was Sheol, or the place of the dead, which scholars have multiple theories about. But in the New Testament, you know who talked about hell the most? Jesus. Jesus talked about hell and heaven and eternity almost more than anything else that he talked about. And John, um, who was one of Jesus's closest followers, uh, we talked about this in part one of the series, he was probably the youngest follower of Jesus um, whenever Jesus, you know, got the gang together. And then you fast forward to 96 AD, John has been a pastor, um, he's been a shepherd to people, and um, because of his faith, he's exiled to the island of Patmos, where he has this um, vision of eternity. He has this vision of heaven. Uh, we've already looked at a, a portion of what he says about heaven. I want to go back a chapter from where we've already looked and see what he says um, about hell. So if you have a Bible or a mobile device, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 20. If you want to follow along, if not, we'll throw these verses up on the screen. But here's what it says. Revelation 20, starting in verse 7. When the thousand years come to an end, now is that symbolic or literal thousand years? Again, sincere Christians sincerely disagree. When the thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. So wait a second, Tim. <laughs> You're telling me you believe in Satan too? Now, here's, here's what I believe. I believe everything good is personified in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God revealed himself through the Son, empowered by the Spirit. And I believe Satan is the personification, is the personified force of evil. And here's, here's a couple reasons why I believe that. I'm a little bit of a history nerd, and I'm a lot of a Bible nerd, okay? And when I put those two things together, I read a lot of church history, I read a, I read a lot of theology, a lot of world history. And when you look at that, just, just, just look at the last century, of, of human existence. 
And for all of our human progress, it's been one of the most brutal centuries in human history. And I just have a hard time looking at that, looking at the scope of history. I have a hard time going to Scripture and not coming up with the conclusion that there is, in fact, a devil, that there is, in fact, a Satan, okay? Child pornography. You drill down real deep on that and tell me there's not a Satan. And tell me there's not a personified force of evil in this world. So yeah, I do believe there is a Satan. And that's weird for some of you. I get it. But hang on. Satan will be let out of prison. Verse 8. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as sand along the seashore. In Hebrew, this is Har Megiddo, which you know of as Armageddon, which is a movie and a song by Aerosmith. There you go, right? Boys to men and Aerosmith in the same message. You, can you tell I was born and raised in the 80s? Okay. But this is, an, this is an actual place in Israel, a valley called Megiddo, where numerous wars were fought in the Old Testament. So John, Apostle John's writing Revelation to a Jewish audience, and he, he, he uses this valley in Jerusalem where there were multiple wars that took place in the Old Testament to point to the, the physical battles that took place there, to point to this final spiritual battle that's going to take place at the end of all time. This is evil's last stand. John continues in verse 9, and I saw them. They went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. That's a whole other story for another day. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place. Read further you realize that it's Jesus who is on the throne, which is a throne of judgment, okay? Last week, we looked at um, the judgment of those who have placed their faith in Jesus, that their deeds will be judged not to get them into heaven, but to give the responsibility and their reward in heaven. That's the whole gold, silver, straw, wheat passage uh, from Corinthians that we looked at last week. This, what John's talking about in Revelation 20, is a different judgment. This is the judgment of those who never surrendered, who never submitted to the lordship of Jesus. And this is what John saw. I saw the dead, talking about those who didn't trust Jesus, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. So what John is, is teaching here is that for those who die apart from Christ, that their deeds... Their works will be judged, and that will affect their eternity. We started this series with, with the big idea. Not all decisions in life are going to affect you in eternity, but some of the decisions you make in this life will. And Scripture is clear that what we do with Jesus, how you respond to Jesus, what you believe about Jesus will affect what happens in eternity. He goes on, verse 13. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. In other words, nobody can hide from this. Today, you have the freedom to say, I don't believe in hell. One day, you'll find out. You can't hide. 
and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, you see judgment. You see judgment happen on Satan. You see judgment happen on those who have not been, their, their, their name is not recorded in the book of life. That's those who never trusted Jesus. And so again, some of you hear that, you go, seriously, really? Like, does anybody believe that? But come on, the same Jesus that you love and admire. Like everybody thinks Jesus was a great teacher. Everybody loves when he talks about love and grace and forgiveness. The same Jesus that taught all that stuff taught about hell. He taught about the reality of this moment in history where good and evil will be separated for all time. And if we believe he's authoritative on life and grace and forgiveness, the stuff we like, why do we think he's not authoritative on the stuff that we don't? You got to decide, is everything Jesus said true or just the parts you want to be true? Which leads to another question multiple people asked. Do loving, kind people who haven't surrendered to Jesus still go to hell? Now, the way it was asked, why would a person who means well and is a good person but hasn't committed to Christ be banned to the same torture as the person that intentionally hurts others? That is a great question. Great question. And this goes back to what we talked about last week, that being a good person isn't what gets you to heaven. Being a good person isn't what saved you. The finished work of Jesus is what saves you and your willingness to embrace what he did on your behalf. That's what moves you from death to life. But again, this question, as gracious as it is, as curious as it is, as much as it's been asked over the last 2,000 years, it comes from the prevalent belief that being a good person is what gets you to heaven. And, and just don't kill anybody, don't deal drugs to middle schoolers, give some money to charity every now and then, and you're in, right? But that's not what Jesus, that's not what any of the writers of the New Testament teach. Um, it, it's how other religions work, which this is interesting, right? Buddhism is all about your good deeds, outweighing your bad deeds. Buddhism is all about karma and reaching nirvana. Um, Hinduism teaches that your deeds impact what happens when you're reincarnated. That's not Christianity. Never was. It's never going to be. But this idea continues from generation to generation to generation. So how do we know? How do we know that's not Christianity? And here, I want to look at the same passage we looked at last week. It's a different translation. So it's a little bit worded a little bit differently. I just want to look at the same passage because I think it's worth repeating. Do good people go to heaven? Bad people go to hell? No. Romans 3. For everyone has sinned. That means there are no good people. Everyone has sinned. People you think are good, people you think are bad, people who are tall, people who are short. Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, your grandmama has sinned. For all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, and we may not admit it, but we all know. <coughs> we've got anger, and we've got spite, and we've got jealousy, and we've got greed, and we've got lust. Whatever your flavor of sin is, we all know it's in us. We all know that. 
You know, we know, we've fallen short. And what does that mean for our discussion? It means if escaping hell depended on your good deeds, you're toast. If, if escaping hell is about your good works, we're all toast. Because everyone has sinned. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus. Here's the good news. Yet, God. This is something God did. Nobody asked him. He chose to do it on his own. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. How does he do that? He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. What's the penalty for our sins? You go to Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the penalty for sin. So how did God save us from death? God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. Here it is. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Jesus saves you. Jesus saves you, not your good works. And it's your trust, it's your faith, it's your confidence to embrace what he did on your behalf that makes you right with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news, okay? Which brings me to the big idea for the day, okay? This is regardless of what your question is or regardless of what questions that this message stirs up in you, this is the thing that I want you to walk away with the most, okay? This is it. And, and I also need to admit, there are people who would disagree with me on this, especially people who, who lean towards a predestination belief, okay? But my best understanding of what hell is that hell is not God's decision to live without you. Scripture is very clear that God is for you. He loves you. He's made a way for you. And he moves in your direction in multiple ways. Do you know what one of the ways he's moved in your direction is? You are sitting in a service right now where you are hearing the gospel. You're sitting in a place where your ears can hear about Jesus. He's moving towards you. But scripture also teaches that God gave us some degree of free will and what we do with our free will, specifically when it comes to Jesus, echoes into eternity. So hell is not God's decision to live without you. It's your decision to live without God. That, that God doesn't actually send people to hell. They choose it. C.S. Lewis writes um, in, in his great divorce, it's a, there's a book um, that he wrote right after um, World War II. And, and he actually writes that hell is locked from the inside. That people actually choose it. So hell is not God's decision without you. It's your decision without God. There's something about love that's inherently tied to freedom. If, if you've ever loved someone and they didn't love you back, how did that work? Could you make them love you? Like, like, if you're a parent, like one of the things that melts your heart more than anything else is when your kids freely choose to love and obey you. There's, there's something about love that's inherently tied to freedom, but you can't force it. God will not force people to love him. God will not force people to surrender to him. And his love is so perfect. This is the part that I can't explain. His love is so perfect that he's willing people to give whatever they choose, even if that's for eternity. Can I, can I explain that? I can't. 
but I think that's what scripture teaches. That's the camp that I land in. Another great question, um, how can hell exist if God has reconciled all things to himself? This is somebody who knows their Bible, right? Because Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus has reconciled all things to himself. It's, it's, it's a great question, but this is a question that, that there's a question underneath the question. And the question underneath the question finds its root in universalism. And universalism says that everything's going to be okay in the end. God's going to say the word and everybody gets in to heaven. And there are people, there are sincere Jesus-believing people that believe that. I am not in that camp. I, I don't believe scripture teaches this. I don't believe it's something that's been taught throughout the history of the church. Um, but but, but because the way, again, that I read scripture, I just don't see it. So here's, here's one of the most popular, you know, most quoted verses ever. Even if this is your first day in church, you've heard this before. Okay. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So everybody gets in? Keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So everybody gets in, right? Got to keep reading. This speaks to the little bit of freedom that we have. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. There's a decision that we have to make, and somehow our decision about Jesus makes an eternal difference. But again, I, I don't believe hell is God's decision to live without you. It's clear. He wants a relationship with you. He came and paid the ultimate price in order for you to be in right relationship, and he's extended that relationship. He's extended that invitation to you. The better question is, what are you doing with Jesus? That's the question. What have you done with Jesus? Another question, are the flames and pain in hell literal or metaphorical? Um, this is, this kind of finds its stem, okay, in some places it, it, it says that hell is, is the outer darkness, but then it's eternal flames. How does that work? Those two things can't exist at the same time, right? So is it literal or is it metaphorical? My answer, I don't know. I, I just don't know. Jesus talks about hell as a place where suffering never ceases. Um, in in, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he talks about hell. Uh, he, he compares it to um, the worst thing you've ever done in your life and the memory of that, just living with a memory of that forever. Either way, <laughs> if it's literal or metaphorical, it doesn't sound enjoyable. Like, either way. Okay? Um, I actually want to show you a clip. This is a clip uh, of an interview from a guy who had a near-death experience. Um, his name is Howard Storm. Um, he was a, he's a retired college professor of art who had a near-death experience. And um, this, this kind of stems from the question we just asked, but it also stems from another question I got uh, via email where somebody said, why is it that most of the near-death experiences we hear about are about heaven? Are there any near-death experiences that we hear of people going to hell? And I think the statistics are actually about 23% of the near-death experiences that we have on record are of the negative variety. And Howard Storm had one of those. And I just want you to hear um, his story, and then we'll head towards home. As we went, it got darker and darker, and they came in closer and closer, and more and more of them were around me. And 
now as I ask them questions like where are we going, how much further, things like that, they started to become more rude and say things to me like, shut up, don't ask questions, you'll find out, you don't need to know, keep moving, keep moving, move it, you know, like that. And I'm like getting pretty intimidated, that becomes fear, that becomes terror. Now this is over a journey of miles and miles and miles. And eventually it's so dark, I'm aware I can't see anything anymore. It's pitch black. And I, I figure I'm, I'm done, you know, I've had it. And so I said, I'm not going any further. And they said, oh yes, you are. You've got further to go. And I said, I'm not going. And so they started to tug at me and push at me. What they were doing was just playing with me, toying with me. Um, and at first it was pushing, kicking, pulling, hitting. And then that became biting and tearing with their fingernails and hands. And they were taking pieces of me. And there was a lot of laughter, a lot of very foul language. And then they became more invasive. There has never been a horror movie or a book that can begin to describe their cruelty because their cruelty was pure, purely sadistic. I know that they got nothing out of it. It was simply something to do. And I'm very aware that they were so empty, so without compassion or feeling for me, that it was just amusement for me to scream and yell and fight back. The physical pain was pain from head to foot, just solid, horrible, acute pain on a scale of one to 10, 10 total didn't begin to match what I felt on the inside was, you know, um, having been taken down to nothing. I mean, the worst things that you could possibly imagine had happened to me and more. And in that place, I heard a voice which I identify as my voice, except that it did not come out of my throat, off my lips. But I do feel, I, it's strange, but I feel like it came out of my chest. This voice said, pray to God, and I thought, I don't believe in God, I don't pray. The voice said, pray to God. And I thought, I don't even know how to pray. I couldn't pray if I wanted to pray. The voice said, pray to God. And I thought, when I was a boy and had gone to Sunday school, we had been taught prayers. Um, what were those prayers? So I'm searching for anything that I remembered as a child. Our Father who art in heaven. I remember like these phrases out of prayers. And I start to mutter this stuff and the people around me absolutely can't bear it. And so in language that has never been heard in this world, obscene, filthy, vulgar language, they're saying to me the, the content of which is, there is no God, nobody can hear you, and now you're going to really be hurt. You think what you've experienced so far is something? Wait until we've got for you now. Now, this made me 
want to pray more because for the first time I was able to hit back at them. The prayers were like clobbering. So he goes on to say that um, he wasn't sure, but he was, he didn't think he was in hell. He thought he was on the road to hell, right? And, and I don't know. I don't know if the pain in hell is literal or metaphorical. I just don't want you to find out. I don't want you to find out. So here's where we'll land today. There, there's, a, there's a theological concept called common grace. We've talked about this throughout the fall a little bit. What's common grace? Um, well, common grace, the way Jesus said it, is God causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Some, it's partly what drives us crazy in this world is that there are good things that happen to good people and bad people. And bad things happen to bad people, but it also happens to good people, like your neighbor who, you know, has a nicer house and a nicer car and a bigger bank account but doesn't believe in Jesus, they're experiencing common grace. And, and, and Mother Teresa, <laughs> who was one of the most self-sacrificing, loving individuals of the 20th century, lived in the slums of Calcutta. That's, that's common grace. There's a mix of good and evil in this world. But what's Scripture what I believe Scripture very clearly teaches is that eternity separates the good and evil that are mixed on the earth. We saw this in Luke chapter 16, the parable that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man. That Lazarus was at Abraham's bosom. He was in heaven, and the rich man was in hell, and there was this chasm between them that couldn't be crossed. There's a separation of good and evil that existed on this earth. And you know what? <laughs> you actually long for that kind of separation to take place. You, you want relationships to be joyful and rewarding all the time. You don't want to deal with the mess of it. You, you want temptation, the temptations your kids face, the temptations you face, the things that you deal with, that whenever you do them, you, you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to do it, but you can't quite. You want separation from that. You want separation from the people who perpetrate evil in this world. You want separation from that. And praise God, there's coming a day when that will take place. Or he will separate the good from the evil. But in the meantime, it's mixed. You say, why is it mixed in the meantime? Here's my, my best shot at it. Because I don't think God is willing for anyone to perish. I think he wants everyone to come to repentance. And the longer he waits, the more he holds off, the more opportunity for people to finally say, as Mark said earlier, I surrender. I surrender. The longer he waits, the more he holds off, the more people can be born. <laughs> and, and yeah, there's some negative sides of that. But the positive side of it, there's more people that can be in relationship with him in heaven. What an amazing opportunity <laughs> that we have right now in the era of common grace to respond to God's invitation to choose 
him. What an amazing opportunity that we have right now to share with anyone and everyone who's willing to listen. It's the invitation to, to, to what one pastor calls the end of the rope club. I like that. It's the end of the rope club. And, and you may not be there today. You may not be there tomorrow. You may not be there a week or a month or a year from now, but if you ever find yourself longing for a world where good and evil is separated, you cry out to Jesus. And one of the things he gives you is the hope of living in a world where those two things are no longer mixed. So we're going to close with a song today. It's a familiar song to those of you who've been around for a while. It's, it's a song that, that, that alludes to this good and bad that's been mixed in our world. It's a song that speaks of Jesus' death, but it's also a song that speaks of his resurrection, that he came, he arose with our freedom in hand. It's a song about his grace and our freedom. And it's, it's a song that those of us who have already joined the end of the rope club <laughs> want to sing over those of you who haven't. There's actually a line in, in the song that invites you to come and join the song of the redeemed. And if you're already a part of the redeemed, I just want you to sing that at the top of your lungs because you're free. You're free. But if you're not, if you have questions, if you're not sure what happens after you die, if you're not sure about heaven and hell, you're not sure about Jesus, you're not sure about the Bible thing, I, I just want you to hear all of us singing that as a collective invitation for you to come join the redeemed, to keep asking questions, to keep pursuing, to keep praying, to keep looking after Jesus. He's closer than you think. And he is way better than you imagine. Amen. Jesus, would you help us to be the kind of people that live this freedom out, that share it with anybody and everybody who's willing to listen. And God, for those who have not experienced this yet, would you help us to be the kind of people that are so contagious with it? <laughs> well, they want to know more. And God, for anybody who's never crossed the line of faith, who's never surrendered to Jesus, they can do it right here, right now and have a conversation with you. They're at the end of the rope. Maybe they're not. Somewhere in between. But God, thank you for making a way. Thank you for giving us the gift of salvation. We love you. We praise you. And we honor you, not just in this hour, but as we leave this place. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. Don't miss next week we got six baptisms to celebrate together. We're going to talk about Thanksgiving. So don't, I'm serious, don't miss next week. All right? Have a great week. You're dismissed.